0: is going to lead us in prayer.
1: Let's go to God in prayer. Oh God, this is the day you have made. We rejoice and are glad in it. You took upon our transgressions, O oh Jesus. You emptied yourself for us. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. And yet, O oh God, you sent your angels to have charge over us. And even though we fight about who sits at the right hand and the left hand, we know you are sovereign, O oh God. That there is nothing anyone can do or say. There is no action in this world that can thwart your plans. And we praise you for that. We praise you that you hold this day in your hand. And we ask now for the Holy Spirit to come upon us, to come here, in this place wherever two or more are gathered in your name, as you have promised us that you will be here. We pray for wisdom, as you have asked us to ask for wisdom, and we pray for faith. As you have said, that is a gift, and we need to ask you for that. And so this day, we come before you, wanting you so much to draw us to you, so that the desire of our hearts is to glorify you, oh God. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you. Okay, um, does anyone, you notice Pastor Dave's not here this morning, and and he was here last week. And if you remember, he's the one that got stuck with the mic and had to run from table to table. So I think that's why he's not here this morning. Anyone else want to do this? Uh, We want the questions for everyone to hear them and also I think these are being taped, and so if you don't speak into the mic, then we don't hear your questions, and that's why. Good morning. Uh, This course is titled, From Brat to Beatific. Uh, Anyone want to give me a definition of brat? Self-centered, spoiled. You remember going through this stage? (laughs) Do you remember uh, li- living in this stage last week? <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> Brat uh, is contrasted with beatific. Who can remember from last week? We, we do have a number of new friends this week, so who would like to give us uh, from memory? Uh, just from the heart, no big theological statement. What's the beatific vision? We talked about it last week at length. Uh, yes. <laughs> Yes, it is moving towards uh, yes um, being totally Christ-centered. <laughs> That's a good component of it. That's right. She's, she knew it so well. She didn't wait for you. That's okay. Uh, anyone else? Petific vision. Being like God because we shall see Him. As being like God because we will see God as God is, mm-hmm. and not just see God as God is, but the New Testament says we will become as God and. That means a fusion with God, uh, not that we are going to become God, but in some way, God is going to unite us with God and fill us with God in such a way that we are going to be inseparable from God. That's the Pacific vision, not just seeing, but becoming. Does that seem Okay, good. So this is what you know the whole New Testament holds out to us as the ultimate, the Pacific vision. And uh, we didn't get to the one part that I wanted to talk about last week, but that's the extended analogy of human development. Now, if you get that uh, handout that I gave to you last week and look on page four, you will see that I lay it out in a little chart form the various stages that the apostles lay out in the New Testament. And they make this extended analogy between the entire range of human development all the way up to, ultimately, the Pacific vision. And uh, the point and purpose of this course is to trace out this extended analogy to see how spirituality tracks or corresponds to the various stages of our own human development. Now, why do you think God would do this? Uh, Why would God create this huge extended analogy and take our human development as the baseline to help us understand this Jim what do you think? Because we
1: can understand it.
0: Because we can. It's obvious to us. Um, Now what do you think happened? Did God create the human race and everything that's entailed with reproduction including the first and the most fun commandment in the Bible which is go forth and multiply. <laughs> go forth and multiply. Mar- <laughs> yes, go forth and multiply, or be fruitful and multiply. Yes, this is the the Jewish people take this as a command. This isn't a suggestion. This is a mitzvot. This is something that you should do, if at all possible. You should get married and have children. That's <laughs> what God wants you to do. That's the way that Jews interpret that text. So uh here God was creating the human beings, and he tells them, look, I've given you this reproductive capacity, now go forth, be fruitful, and multiply. Did God develop this extended analogy of uh, pre-birth, birth, birth, infancy, all the way up to maturity? Did God develop that in spiritual analogy by watching the human race, or did God have it in God's mind before he made the human race? And you're probably going to sit there and say it's a stupid question, but I want you to think about this. What do you think? Did God watch the whole process of humans uh, reproducing and watching babies being born and watching them grow, and then say, "Wow, this is going to be a great analogy to teach them something spiritually," or did God have it in God's mind from the very beginning? From the very beginning. Right, but it would be fun anyways, even if God hadn't designed, dis- designed it that way, right? So I want to know, well, did God you gotta have You look it? at the bigger picture, John. I look <laughs> at the bigger picture. Sure, it's fun all the way, but you, I don't, yeah, what I want to know is, sure, God has, if you want to look at it that way, has a measure of fun, but I want to know, did, did he intend it to be that way, or did he develop the analogy after watching the facts? No, I I think he knew it beforehand. Okay, anyone else you want to throw your two cents in? Because this is, you might say, again, very redundant and stupid, but I want you to understand something that's profound, I think. Yes? Well, if we want to believe the theological implications of the first chapter
1: of the Gospel of John, we're going to have to come to the conclusion that the Word was there at creation.
0: Right. beautiful. Uh, Spoken like a classic Reformed theologian, yes. (laughs) And I agree with you. I, I believe that's true. So the implications of this are what? That God actually invented the notion of male and female. I mean, maybe you have ever read some science fiction literature or delved into theoretical possibilities of how God could have created creatures and God didn't have to make us male and female God did not have to make this reproductive system God could have created entities bypassing the whole reproductive system in fact God actually did bypass that system with who uh, well not with Jesus because uh, he was always in existence and then his humanity was uh, formed part of the system Yes, I agree with you, but, but Adam was still a male, though, right? Yes.
1: What we've been learned, if you read the Bible, it's from dust. So.
0: Yes, from dust to dust. Okay, then good. But can you think of another class of beings that don't reproduce sexually? Oh, oh I'm sorry, that don't reproduce. Angels! Angels! So, what I want you to see and understand that, that because we're humans, we're in a template that God made for a designed purpose. But this wasn't... Necessary or required God could have brought each one of us into d- existence just directly so the, the issue then is why did God create this extended template and run us through it uh, and I want you to think about that and this is the thesis of this course that everything that we go through actually it's the thesis of the apostles and I'm just tracing it out for you Everything that we go through from the from the moment that we're conceived until the day we leave this earth, it's all part of an extended analogy that God wants us to experience because we can then better understand the journey to God because we're going through this physical and biological phenomenon. Does that make sense to you? Am I explaining it okay? That's an amazing way to look at the human experience. You are undergoing an extended metaphor, an analogy, a parable, as it were. Everything that's part of your biological development has some sort of connection to the spiritual world. And God wants us to start making those connections and go into the spiritual world. So, yes, sir? So that first question? The first question? Oh, God intended it to be this way. In other words, it wasn't planned to be? There. No. Uh, yes, it would have been uh, a beautiful, much much easier to uh, under, uh, appreciate and understand analogy had we not fallen. Yes. Had we not fallen, this would this would just unfold. The fusion between the physical and the spiritual would be just beautiful and perfect. Because that's what we're designed to be. We're not designed to be angels who only have an incorporeal or spiritual nature. And we're not designed to be animals who only have a biological nature. We've been designed to be these hybrids. We're the bridge between the animals and the angels. And we sit in the middle. We have an animal type nature, and we have an incorporeal or spiritual side uh, body, soul, and spirit. And those make the true human. And God designed it to be that way on on purpose so that as we go through the process, we'll learn something about God. What do you think about that? Okay, <clears throat> well, you know, it's really important to uh, note this because um, if you ever wondered why would God put us through all of this, this human development and you know, the, the whole realm of the human experiences, it makes a big difference if you think God's just kind of making this up as we go and throwing down nice little insights to us uh, as we're going through it versus that this was designed and planned from the very beginning to be this way and can have a profound impact upon your spiritual life once you understand it. So th- that's why I want you to s- see that, and we can keep talking about it. Okay, so now that I've told you the main uh, thesis of this course, we're going to go through these stages of human development, and today we start on the bottom, uh, on the chart, page four, and you need also the handout that I gave to you. I just want to note the box that we're in. You notice I've called it pre-borns. Uh, these are people that are not yet born, and I'm gonna explain that in a minute. But Paul, on now if you take the top of the handout that I gave to you, the one for today, the single, single page. I'm gonna read this passage to you up at the top. Notice where it's from, 1 Corinthians 2:14 through 15. And this is his language. So today what we're going to try to do is understand what Paul's talking about here. But a natural human does not receive except that which is of the Spirit of God. For they, meaning the things that are of the Spirit of God, are foolishness and cannot be understood by a natural person because they are spiritually appraised. But the human who is spiritual appraises all things, yet is appraised by no human. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has instructed the Lord, but we have the mind of Christ. You'll notice there, he puts uh, a tag. I don't want to use the word label because that sounds so negative. But he, he puts a, um, a descriptor. That's what I want. A descriptor on certain types of humans. And in this particular passage, he describes two types of humans. What are the two types that you see there? A natural person. And then, and he contrasts that with the spiritual person. Now, we want to find out in this course, what does he mean when he uses these kinds of uh, terminologies? Now, it comes into my mind that probably some of you are sitting there thinking, that's rather judgmental. Uh, Who is... Paul or anybody to slap a descriptor or a label or a, uh, that kind of a phraseology on a person because it seems to imply what? That there's a little bit of this going on and that is not what Paul intends at all. Uh, do you find it to be judgmental if a five-year-old walks into the room and I say, look, uh, an infant has just come in Do you, do you find it offensive if I say some of you look very mature this morning? <laughs> you find that offensive? Why not? It's just a fact. Somehow when we get to the Bible and when the apostles start describing things the way they are, like we would in the physical realm, because that's what he's doing here. He's describing something in the spiritual realm just like we would in the physical and he says there is such a thing as a natural person, and there is such a thing as a spiritual person. And he's using it in the same way that we would talk about an infant or a mature person. He's not using it in a judgmental way. So you've got to get through that barrier if you really want to understand what he's saying. Yes, sir? Well, you, if you wanted to qualify. If you wanted to qualify it, you could say, that's a very wicked child or a wicked infant or what a well-behaved infant. You could put all those other things on it. But if I just say, look, there's an infant, I'm I'm not making a negative statement or I'm not even making a superior statement. It's just a five-year-old being a five-year-old. It's just a five-year-old. Okay. So, uh, let's now, I want to share with you some vocabulary words. If you drop down to the next paragraph, and these are pretty important for us to understand If we want to understand this term, and this is the Greek word that he uses, phukikos, and it's the word that we get in English for physics. So a natural person is a phukikos person, and we get in English physics, and what is physics? The study of the natural world, right? So... Uh, There's no uh, necessarily a negativity associated with this appraisal that Paul is using. He's just saying there are some people that are just straight up natural people. And he's going to then tell us what that means, and we're going to see it in a few minutes. Okay, so let's look at some of these vocabulary words and see if they're going to help us. Now, phukikos, we just did. It's a Greek word pertaining to being material, physical, especially in relation to life processes. So this is a human being who is alive, made in the image of God. They have the original creation, life force that is entailed in being a natural being bound up within them. They're born, they live, and then they're also subject to death. It's just a natural person. Look at the next word, sark's Sarx. Uh, pertaining to the natural, physical characteristics of persons, including their characteristic behavior. So when the apostles use the term "sarks," they just mean that which natural people tend to do, or that which our natural body, our natural inclinations want to do, the way that we are when we're just left unto ourselves, without God's intervention. This is the Sarks. It's the way humans are. Look at the next word, pneuma. And this is used in a variety of different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it's used as wind. Sometimes it's used as spirit, meaning the immaterial part of the human being. A person could say, my spirit is grieved. My pneuma is grieved. You can also use it uh, in Greek, The pneuma is blowing. You're going to see how Jesus makes a pun off of this word when he talks with Nicodemus today when we study that passage. And then uh, sometimes it's used to refer to God, the Holy Spirit, the holy pneuma. So what is this about? It's the non-physical, immaterial dimension of reality that is part of what it means to be human, but it's also primarily talking about God. The next word is a, a... a little uh, cognate of that, pneumaticos, not physical, not mer- material, spiritual, being supernatural and having its ultimate source in God. So when Paul contrasts in that verse we just read the natural <coughs> person with the su- with the um, pneumaticos person, he's saying that there are some humans that are completely and totally locked into this physical realm. They they're not yet connected to God. And then there's other kinds of humans that are very well connected to God, and characteristically, the quality of their life is spiritual. It's pneumaticos. It's characterized by what the Holy Spirit is allowed to do in and through them, rather than characterized by the way that a human would act when it's when the human is just left unto itself. Yes, sir. Jim Kettlewell grew up as a minister's son, and he answers the question that you asked in, in terms of, you know, the word was there at the beginning and so forth. Which a uh, scientist never thinks of that. Uh, John answered his question by uh, like a, a lawyer. And I answered it like a scientist. Now yes. That is our I never thought of that, that our behavior uh, is extends further than that. Absolutely, that's a really great insight. Um, a natural person. This is not when he says that he's not putting these people down. He's not saying they're not intelligent. He's not saying they can't master uh, a discipline. But sure, if you have a lawyer and a doctor and some other kind of all these, all of that goes into the way that their natural mind works. And this is hugely important for us, for you to know about how the inclination of your own mind is. Because what Paul wants us to understand is while there is a bridge between the natural and the supernatural, you cannot, um, you cannot say um, that these analogies are invalid because of the very first thing we established at the beginning of the course. God designed it to be this way. So the war between science and religion is kind of um, misguided in a lot of ways because if the Bible's telling the truth, It's God that made the physical world anyways. So why should there be a conflict? We're just trying to find out how God did it. So I hope that's a good response for you. Look at the next word, bios. Natural life, created life, biological life. Who has bios in this room? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I hope so. Some of you uh, look a little shaky this morning. (laughs) Uh, Bios, where do you get it? okay the ultimate source you could trace it back to God Uh, intermediate source where'd you get it your parents where'd they get it their parents so bios is just the life that you get naturally your natural life and you inherit it from your from your parents it ultimately comes from God and then the last word for today zoe this is uncreated life God is Zoe. Zoe is God's supernatural life. Uh, Who has Zoe? Uh, Yes, they do as a conferred gift from God. But they don't have it inside of themselves inherently. They have to get it from God. Who else has Zoe? Anyone that has Christ living inside of them has Zoe. And uh, these words are crucial for us. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> so what we want to do? Well, I, I made a joke about you already today. So <clears throat> I, fi- I figured you didn't. I, I figured you didn't show up because you didn't want to run around with the mic this morning.
1: Oh, I was gonna give it to him. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
0: Okay now could you kindly turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 3 and we're going to follow this little outline I put there for you because I, I want you to what we want to try to do now is understand this concept of a natural person and do, do so in, in a very highly personal way. John tells a story about an encounter between this man named Nicodemus and Jesus and it illustrates everything that is entailed in the notion of natural and Bios and Zoe and Numa, this one story has all of it packed in here. So we find uh, in John chapter 3 verse 1 and 2 I'll read this for you. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, I want you to look at this text and see what you can find out about Nicodemus, or make any inferences. Find the facts first, and then let's get some inferences too. How does he describe Nicodemus? He's a ruler. Uh, As it turns out, he doesn't mean uh, like a purely political ruler, but as it turns out, if you want to follow the study guide that I put together for you and look at those texts later on today you'll find out that he was a member of the Sanhedrin he was one of the rulers of Israel he was like a U.S. senator uh, a very small and elite, elite group of Jewish scholars and leaders so he is a very very important person uh, anything else that you want to drag out of this text discreet, discreet? Uh, Why would he do that, do you think? Yeah, there's a lot of controversy going on around Jesus right now. So I've heard people give this sermon and make it out to be, and I love the way you said discreet. I've heard people give sermons on this as if Nicodemus was sort of like a coward or um, a scared person, and I don't really read it that way at all. I think uh, there was a lot of controversy uh, going around with Jesus, and Nicodemus wanted to go someplace privately so that he could have an in-depth conversation with Jesus without all of the drama going on, because he really wanted to understand what Jesus was about, and I based that viewpoint on what does he say about Jesus? He, he, he said,
1: he doesn't come out accusatory.
0: Yes. He says, I know, you're really good, and I, you know, so Right. Okay, well, whether he's buttering or whether he's just blathering out what he thinks, he calls Jesus Rabbi. Now, I would think Nicodemus was probably significantly older than Jesus. Uh, Jesus is a very young man. He's only about 30. Uh, Most of the rulers of Israel were, were older. So for this guy to call Jesus Rabbi is very significant. It would be... Uh, he is really honoring him he's acknowledging that he is a teacher and he's also acknowledging the signs and wonders that he's seen him do and he has come to the conclusion you have to be for real because nobody can do this stuff that you do without God being with him so I'm going to allow you uh, well no no let's look at verse 10 too because I want you to see this too before we go forward down in verse 10, Jesus said, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? So when they get into this conversation, Nicodemus does not fully understand what Jesus is saying at certain points. But what does Jesus say back to Nicodemus? How does he refer to him? How, what does he call Nicodemus? A teacher. Now, some people put a lot of emphasis on, on the definite article there. Are you the teacher of Israel Uh, somewhere in between a teacher and the I think is the truth this is probably one of the most respected Bible scholars in Israel of the day that's who he's talking to and Jesus is, uh, is acknowledging this to him so there's some mutual respect between these two people they are talking at a very high level now what does Jesus say to him in verse 3, 5, and 7, and this is going to be where I'm going to count on my scientist friends in this room to unpack the significance of how Jesus says, talks to him. I'm going to read 3 through 7, and then we're going to pick it apart. Jesus answered him, uh, Truly, I say to you, unless one, and then depends on how you translate these text, I would like to hear some of yours. Uh, Born from above is the preferred translation. Anyone have anything else? Born a second time. Anyone else have anything else? Born, uh, that's later. Born again. I'm looking at verse 3, and we need to unpack that and, and uh, get rid of all of the inflammatory uh, notions that have been attached to it and truly try to understand what he's saying here. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born a second time, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That And here's the explanation for this. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born a second time from above or again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So maybe we can escape the born again connotations by just following Jesus at the last point here in verse 8 and just refer to this as being born of the Spirit. Is that a good uh, operating model for today? So he's contrasting, this text right here is contrasting what? Being born of what? The flesh, and the other option is being born of the Spirit. Okay. Now, he says some pretty strong things here. He says, unless you have been born of the Spirit, what does he say is not possible? You can't enter, you can't see it, you can't see or enter the kingdom of God unless this has happened. And of course, when Nicodemus responds back to him, uh, how is Nicodemus taking this language? Who thinks they understand? What's Nicodemus thinking about here? When he starts talking about being born and born of the Spirit and born again and born from above, Nicodemus immediately goes where? (laughs) To To the thing that he knows. To the... Biological realm that we all are aware of. We all know what birth is. That's why I wanted you to think about this at the beginning. Did God invent this after the fact and say this is a cool analogy or did God make it this way in the beginning that we would have to go through this birth process so that we could fully appreciate the spiritual? I think it's the latter. So when somebody says to you this must be this way or it is of necessity for it this to be this way or it is not possible for something to be that way the first thing that a modernist our modern sentimentality says what? Our American sensibility says if somebody says you cannot do this or this is not possible what's our first reaction? Watch, uh, watch me or who are you to say what's possible or not? Um, now, uh, give me a medical, something that's an impossibility in the me- realm of m- medicine, and don't go getting all fancy either, just keep it simple. Um, that you, you could say to your fellow doctor, this cannot be because. Tell me. A blood pressure or a pulse without a heartbeat. <laughs> okay. Now, when you say something, you can't have a pulse or uh, blood pressure without a heartbeat, um, you say, oh, well, of course. But when a doctor says that, this is like, um, it's a fact, right? I mean, it's just a medical reality, it's, a, it's a scientific fact. Yeah. Uh, what if I say, you cannot crossbreed a camel and a giraffe? And uh, and get progeny is what I mean. <laughs> uh, I'm not worried about the act. I'm worried about the <laughs> progeny. You cannot reproduce gi- giraffes and uh, camels. You can't do that. Uh, what am I saying? A scientific statement? It's not. Po- it hasn't been done yet. Um. No, I'm I'm asserting scientifically it cannot be done. Why can't it be done? it just can't I mean you can try to do it but you're not getting any progeny out of this why not the genetics don't mix they, it's not, they're not breedable that's, the, that's what a species is the definition of a species is something that can mate and reproduce these are two different species they can't mate and reproduce I'm not against camels and I'm not against giraffes I'm just saying they can't do this Yes, you can. They're, they're close enough on the genetic uh, uh, genome thing that they can they can reproduce. But that's that's the definition there. But, but not, two not not two donkeys because right. so you right. could say because they don't have the genetic it's impossible they don't have the genetic markers to make it happen. So is anybody offended to this morning that I baldly said a giraffe and a, a camel cannot reproduce? Are you mad at me? Do you think I'm limiting these animals in some way or? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I wouldn't be, because uh, that would change the conditions quite differently, yes. If, if, if we get to the place where we can uh, get into the genome that deep and start making that kind of a radical hybrid, I, uh, no, but as of now, you cannot do this. So when the master says to Nicodemus... Unless a person is born of the Spirit, they cannot see, nor can, they cannot enter. Is he being mean, or is he simply saying a statement of fact? Not, I, I'm not making this up as a rule. I'm not arbitrarily saying this to you. I'm telling you something that is of what we would call in philosophy ontological necessity. It is the way it is. It's, it's the way reality is. Wow. So how does he take it? He goes right down to the physical. And we've already talked about why do we do that? Because that's what we know. So then the master has to pull him uh, out from this uh, cul-de-sac that he's in by telling him some things about the source of this life that he's talking about. Now, of all the definitions that I gave you this morning, uh, what do you think the word for spirit is in verse 5? Noma. Um, what, the word for flesh in verse 6? Sarks. Uh, verse 8, he makes a pun. Jesus makes a pun. The wind He says, blows wherever it wants. In Greek, it's the pneuma blows wherever it wishes and you hear it sound and you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the pneuma. Now, is he talking about a Bob Dylan blowing in the wind kind of thing or is he? No, not really because he's taking an analogy from the physical wind that we can see blowing around. And he's saying, Look, you can't see that wind blowing, but you can see its effects. And he's trying to bridge back to Nicodemus and saying, No, I cannot show you something that is immaterial, but I can show you the effects. What do you want? Would it be like faith? Uh yes, he Yes, it, he's calling Nicodemus to take a step up from the merely biological and take that next step into the kingdom of God and he's trying to show him the uh, requirements of what it's going to take to make that move. Is that, and it says it's going to require faith. But he, wants to, he also wants him to understand it. He wants him to understand. He wants this teacher to understand this notion. Because after all, why would Jesus even be saying this stuff to this man? I mean, would any one of you want to go into the judgment hall of Christ and stand there with Nicodemus and have your earthly life evaluated next to his? This guy is a great Jewish scholar. Why, is Je- why didn't Jesus just say, go on and do what you're doing? You, you don't need anything from me. You're already a perfected soul. You're a Bible scholar. Why is he, even ha- why is he telling this great guy that you need something? Yes. Yeah. Christ is trying to tell him, you know, you, you wouldn't know what great teacher you are, the way you're going about it, it isn't going to happen. Either you get baptized and believe in me as your Savior, or you're not going to have Okay, that's that's one way of reading that. and But doesn't that seem rather unfair? Here's a man that's devoted his entire life to mastering the Jewish Bible. And when I say master, I mean it in the strictest sense of the word. Just absolutely total absorption of the entire Bible. Would have it virtually memorized. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know, but doesn't that offend some of you that the, the master would be telling this guy, look, yeah, you're the teacher and you're the ruler, but, 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 what's he telling him? But what? You're missing something. You need something. You don't have something. And if you don't have that, whatever it is that I'm talking about, uh, you're not going to be able to actually enter in or see the kingdom of God. Is it mean or is it fact? It's fact. He doesn't mean it mean. Some people have read this text and thought, that's very offensive. Uh, But he doesn't mean it that way at all. It's the same kind of a conversation and and the reason I want you to really see that is when he says in verse 6 that which is born of flesh is flesh that which is born of spirit is of spirit that's equivalent to a scientific statement in the mind of Jesus he's saying that's just basically the way reality is there's this biological realm that you have been born into and there is another realm that you also have to be born into yes yes Uh, I can see why you would say that, but no, that's not required because, like I told you last week, um, I'm going to use the Greek letter for pi, pneuma, spirit. What did we learn last week that the Holy Spirit does for those who have not yet come to Christ? Persuades them of, this is from John 16, remember? He persuades people of sin, and of righteousness and of judgment, so he 's working on people from the outside, and he 's leading them, progressing them, and trying to bring them to this encounter with christ and so this is what 's going on with Nicodemus right now he 's being influenced by the Spirit, but he does not yet have what? what doesn 't Nicodemus have? What is Jesus telling them that he needs that he must have he mu- you need to have the spirit and you need zoe because you have already what you have bios you are a living creature you are alive and he wants to move nicodemus on a journey from merely being bios to being a person that has zoe, or eternal life, or God's life in them. Now again, let's go to simple biology. Where did you get this? You got it from your parents. It was a gift to you. You didn't earn it. Or do do any of you remember the time that you in heaven consulted with God and said, I want to be born to these particular people at this particular time you just woke up one day when you were seven and said how did I get here (laughs) it's it's really amazing now if I said to you you cannot enter the human kingdom unless you be born listen to listen to the way I said that you cannot enter the king human kingdom unless you be born am I being mean I'm just stating what? A biological fact. So when he comes over here and is trying to make this analogy, when he says, unless you have this, you cannot enter the kingdom of God, he's making almost a strict equation between this and this. This is a gift. This is a gift. You don't earn either one of them. Now, yes, George. Oh, I thought, oh, I'm sorry, Uh, yes. You mean you went to, to strict chronology at this point? Yes, he would be coming upon them until the day of Pentecost when this new big event of them per- the Holy Spirit permanently living in somebody. Yes. But nevertheless, Zoe can be communicated by the Holy Spirit in this way into the person. Yes. In, in the light of the fact, Yes. And we as humans, our job is to understand we learn the physical laws by our natural growth and development. Right. But we also have to learn, and part of our sanctification is to figure out the spiritual laws that, uh, that we have to live by on this earth until such time as we are one and, and we don't have that responsibility towards Uh Absolutely brilliant. You just stated in a nutshell what this whole course is about. God really does want us to, I mean, look, when we were babies, when, when you were six, when somebody asked you, where'd you come from, what did you, t- what did, what did you tell them, or what did your parents tell you? Did, the stork? Good grief. Or something you, you sprang from the love that your father and I share, or something like that. Now, did any of your parents get down there and into the nitty-gritty of the biology? No. And the first time you heard that, what was that like? What? (laughs) Big bird. bird. Okay, so, (coughs) yeah. So in Dan's analogy, yeah, I mean, you can live for a, you're still alive. You're a biological creature walking around thinking that a stork dropped you off at your parents. Does God want you to stay there forever? No. Eventually, God (laughs) wants you to understand the amazing uh, science. To the degree that you're interested and care about it, God wants you to understand where you came from it's amazing and likewise over here you could you can stay down here and say theology is too complicated i don't want to think about all this and but the spiritual laws that are attached to the way god communicates eternal life into people god wants us to understand and this is what he's trying to do for nicodemus building the analogy for example well listen you you when Nicodemus says what am I going to be go back into my mother's womb he's so locked into the biological realm that he can't at this point make the move he's still in progress so the master tries to help him and says this isn't that hard just go out and watch the trees get blown around by the wind did you see any wind no you didn't see any wind but you saw the effects of it so why is it so hard for you to believe that God, God can work in time, space, history, not being seen, but you can see the effects. That's all he's asking Nicodemus to do. So, before, yes, sir? Would uh, uh, Nicodemus have understood the concept of the kingdom? <laughs> uh, no, he would have understood it in Jewish terms for sure because that uh, term is used in the Older Testament. They talk about God as a king and the kingdom. But it would have been, uh, for sure, uh, been a lot more earthly and uh, messianic and uh, uh, on this earth than it later became in Christian theology, for sure. He would have been thinking about a rule of a literal Messiah in Jerusalem and the rule and reign of God around the world. That's how he would have thought that. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm sure the master could handle it. (laughs) 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 Yes. (laughs) Yeah, he owns the weather channel. All right. Now, before you leave, I would like you to look down to verse 14, Uh, and we're going to read 14 in in. 15 and 16. Nicodemus wants to know how this can be. That's his question. Look at verse 9. How can these things be? It's the same (laughs) attitude that we had when we were, I don't know when, the first time that you ever saw pictures of humans reproducing and the whole reproductive process, but don't you remember how odd it felt the first time that somebody said, look, at one point, you look like a little piece of vanilla pudding. And another point, you look like a little, uh, what a, what a fetuses look like? A cluster, a cluster of raisins. And at another point, you look like E.T. That's odd when you first find that out, isn't it? So that's Nicodemus' query. He's like, how can this stuff be what you're telling me? So here's the master's answer. Uh, starting at, uh, actually, I'm going to read verse 12 too. 12 through 16. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Makes sense. I can't break through because you're so locked into bias right now. I can't hardly get you to see things from a spiritual point of view. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's talking about himself and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal what? what do you think he said? what kind of life? zoe not eternal bios eternal zoe now what is this Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness? this is a little Bible bowl quiz for you right before you go to church. What's he talking about? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. And he water. Uh, close, that's, it's in, in, in conjunction with the Exodus stories when Moses hit the rock, and, and it was associated with them complaining about uh, the food. C- anyone else remember? He all uh, that's earlier. I'm I'm asking you this question just to illustrate something, not to make you feel bad. When he gives this illustration of this little, it is called an illusion, an illusion. It's not quite a citation. It's an illusion. He's alluding to something in the Torah. He doesn't have to go on and on and on about it with Nicodemus because why? This is the way, you know what? In a Jewish commentary, they don't even bother quoting the whole text. They just give you the first couple of words. You're supposed to know the Bible so well that you know where that text is and what it says. So he doesn't go on and on about it. This is, uh, you can read about it later because we won't have time, but it's in Numbers 21, 4 through 9. You know the story, they grumbled about the uh, food, these poisonous snakes came out and were biting them, and uh, they went and ran to Moses and said, these snakes are killing us. And so what did God tell Moses to do? He said, make a bronze snake make it out of bronze, put it up on a pole, lift it up in the air, and tell everybody, if you look at that snake, that bronze snake, uh, the, the snake poison won't kill you. You'll, you'll lie. You'll, you'll, you'll survive. Now, what's that? Why would he tell them to do that? Put that snake, put a snake up on a pole and look at it. let think it through. Where'd the snakes come from? what what was why did they come no not that particular yeah they're part of creation but why were they attacking the Israelites because they were disobedient in other words the snake becomes a symbol of what their sin their rebellion so when he put it up on the pole and said look at that snake and you'll live what he was actually asking them to do is look at your sin realize that this is happening because you sinned against me, you disobeyed me, you rejected me. Is this making sense? And when they, in other words, when they acknowledge, yes, I have sinned, what happened? The serum of faith worked and they didn't die. Now, notice what Jesus does here. He makes an analogy. And he can do this with this Bible scholar. He says, there's an analogy between Moses lifting up the snake on the, on the pole and what? Something that's going to happen in the future. Do you see what he says? What's the analogy? As Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will receive everlasting zoe. So when you look at it, this is how the Jesus is telling us how one can receive Zoe this is how we receive it you received Bios when you were born via your parents you receive Zoe when according to the master you look at him and you realize why is he there on the pole for us for, for our sins he's there like the snake was the symbol of sin And when we look at what he did on the cross and we believe that he did it for us personally, what happens? God puts Zoe into you. God puts uncreated life into that person who believes. So how does one get Zoe? Jesus is explaining this. I want you to understand this. How do we get Zoe? Believing in... Christ and what he did for us on the cross that's how it gets communicated and when a person believes in Jesus in that sense when they come to understand that he has died in their place and taken all of their penalties and all of their sins the master is trying to tell Nicodemus you make the first move from being a natural person into what? What did he say you enter into? The kingdom of God, the realm of the spirit. In fact, I would, if I was, if Jesus was here today, he probably wouldn't use the term kingdom. He'd probably say something really cool like the realm of the spirit or something like that because kings, you know, we don't relate to that. But when you put faith in Christ, that's the entry point into the realm of the Spirit. How do you, how does that happen? It's from the Holy Spirit. He's the one that does it. Okay, time's up unless you have one question and uh, anybody want to have a last comment or quick response? Judge Haas, you look like you're going to be quiet this morning. (laughs) All right, well, I hope this was helpful for you. God bless you. I'll see you next week and we're going to go forward Uh, to the next stage which will be spiritual infancy. Bye-bye. Have a great day.